Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome. Uh, This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, community radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial. Uh, Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness and for their outside broadcast. Um, Hi, I'm Bill. Uh, I'd like to welcome Grant and Neil to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi. Hey, Bill. (laughs) Um, They're going to share their experience of drug addiction and how Narcotics Anonymous has helped them. Um, So, guys, we usually start talking about growing up, the sort of challenges we face and um, how that influences our (laughs) life ongoing. So, um, Grant, what was life like for you growing up? Uh, growing up for me was, it was actually, it was really, really tough. Um, the family I grew up with, my mum wasn't a drinker, my dad wasn't a drinker or anything like that. Um, but we grew up in a small town and, um, my brother at a very young age was, um, molested and he was actually asked to put forward a statement to the police. This was when I was about five years old and, uh, told that it would, um, stay quiet however it was broadcasted through all the local papers and the result from that was uh, straight away at school we were labelled um, the kids at that school didn't have any empathy their decision was to label us as you know gays and out of place and all this type of thing and um, immediately that resulted in you know severe bullying at school and um, obviously you know, we just any friends that I sort of was starting to make at that stage um, diverted away from me, um, and yeah, I was just made to feel really, really out of place. It was just every day was fear going to school for me. Um, it resulted in you know a lot of bashings. Um, the verbal bullying was absolutely horrible, and um, that particular instance just uh, broke up our familyhood. It was. Um, my brother very quickly resorted to, you know, pain medication. The the particular person that caused this to um, happen used to come around and uh, bring alcohol and drugs to the house and uh, feed that to, to me and my brothers, mm. um, causing, you know, blackouts. I was, I was given the ultimatum, you know, on several occasions. It was actually really regular. You know, you're not going to get any water. You're not getting this. You're not getting that. The result was um, alcohol, you know, beer, gin, beam, whatever it was, and um, I used to just drink that to the point of um, blackouts, and uh, it was just, you know, all of my brothers were in addiction. I had three brothers. Um, my father wasn't understanding towards addiction whatsoever. Um, he blamed my brothers for, you know, the way that I was turning out as well, which turned to um, violence and... You know, I know it's not his fault now. He was dealing with things the best he could, but um, if he didn't like things, it was um, he just had no sympathy for us. You know, he's uh, he didn't like cats. I had two pet cats, so he shot those in front of me. Um, didn't like my brother's dog uh, because it was a violent breed of dog. So he also decided to shoot that in front of us, and um, my brother resorted to. 
you know, attempting to shoot my dad at that stage in life and um, pretty quickly after he was shipped off to a psych ward, um, he took a vendetta out. He was in a psychosis or some sort of state there due to everything that had happened and um, decided that it was a good idea to try and um, kill me and he swore black and blue to both my parents that he was going to kill me to... Um, to basically get back at my dad because, you know, the the violence and just the exclusion that was put forth to him. Um, the result of that was, you know, with everything going on, both my other brothers both both ended up um, in severe heroin addiction and um, one of them was kicked out and it was just... It just turned into a, a revolving door and it split our family up, you know. My parents both ended up uh, splitting up and... I was forced to go and live with my father at that stage. Um, for me, I really idolised my brothers. I used them as a father figure. And at a very young age, while I was still in primary school, they were introducing me to um, to pot, to pills, to alcohol, all this type of thing. So for me, that was just a normal thing to do. Um, I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any other social life. So... Yeah, I just continued on with that. I took up smoking in about grade four or five. I was constantly stealing those off my brothers. Um, moving into high school, I just continued on. Straight away, I was um, first day of high school, I was shown, this is where you smoke, this is where you get the drugs from. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of the social, you know, a lot of the people that were in my primary school were in the high school as well, so... My first day of school in high school resulted in, um, you know, big fights in the um, in the centre courtyard where, you know, I was beaten by several people there and that just created an image for me that, you know, I wasn't welcomed by anyone or anywhere. So all I, all I did is just, you know, just found the people that had the drugs, the places to hide away from these people, started skipping school and... Um, yeah, it was just drugs and drugs and drugs. I just, I hated school with a passion. I found out later on in life I was dyslexic. So, you know, no matter how much I tried it, English or maths, I thought I was doing really, really well with them. Then the results had come in and it was like, you know, this is all wrong. You haven't been listening in class. And, um, yeah, I sort of, I just gave up on the, uh, the whole school life part of things. So my childhood wasn't enjoyable at all, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, <laughs> it sounds pretty terrible. Um, so, Neil, what about you? What was life like growing up for you? Look, I had a, in some funny way, I had a slightly privileged life, uh, in the sense that you know my father was a, a general aviation pilot, so we moved quite a lot. And at the time, you think that's quite privileged, but we moved. I, I think I went to um, eleven different schools by the time I graduated high school. Um, but it, and there were some exotic locations involved. I mean, we went to Darwin in 1970 when I was about eight years of age, and then we lived in Southeast Asia, which was a terrific experience. But uh, in the background of that was a bipolar alcoholic father who was quite violent and a, a mother who sort of slipped into alcoholism as a way of dealing with it all. Um, and then the kind of uh, emotional retardation that goes with that that resulted in me... Um, you know, I became a liar, basically. I had to lie. Uh, and I had to create a persona that I... that, 
you know, you, I think we were talking earlier, you yourself went to about five different schools uh, in, in primary school. You know, you've got to kind of fit in quick. Yeah. So you find ways of... It's got, you find ways of integrating. They've got nothing to do with who you are. They're to do with how you perceive you are going to be able to, to yeah, fit in. You become a chameleon. You become a chameleon. Yeah. And, uh, and then I carried that on into my adult life. Uh, and I had no contact with myself, with my emotional self, as a consequence of that upbringing. And, and uh, although uh, I, I always thought I did, because I was pretty good, good at convincing myself that, you know, I was normal. And, and, and to me, that was normal. I was always envious, though. I remember being envious of my friends, what friends I did have. I remember being envious of their family life. I'd always go to friends' places and think, gee, wow, this is amazing. You've got amazing parents. <laughs> you know, um, when in fact they didn't have amazing parents, they just had normal parents. That's right. Um, or parents that actually uh, were emotionally stable whereas mine weren't. Yeah, who weren't a problem. Yeah. yeah, who didn't... You know, my father used to drag me out of bed. At, he'd come home from the pub at 2 o'clock in the morning and drag me out of bed and box me in the lounge room and saying, come on, boy, and it started with open hands and it, and it, it ended up when, with fists. Um, so I was constantly being dragged out of bed and knocked down and then going to school the next day with a black eye and having to say I fell down the stairs, you know. So how old were you about to start? My 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 first memory of my father hitting my mother was when I was about four or five. I just remember being terrified and not knowing what to do. And then when I was twelve, I started to get in the middle of it. Uh, and I was pretty clever kid. Uh, I was also a pretty talented sportsman. And my father was a pretty bright man, but not I wouldn't say incredibly clever, but a pretty bright man, kind of natively. You know, the native cleverness, shrewd, mm. uh, and he was also a pretty decent sportsman. But he wasn't—he um, wasn't kind of as talented as I was. And so, um, the fact that I was getting in between him and my mother, and the fact that I was better at most things than he was, was a source of profound uh, distress to him. And as a consequence, he—he uh, he took that out on me. And uh, that so the story of my, whilst not as messy, um, is very similar. Uh, and that that thing of um, uh, having to, uh, well, I, you know, you shut down your emotional, you you end up emotionally undeveloped, um, and because you don't want to feel anything, because if you, because it's all pain around you, and uh, my mother. You know, if you were happy, you were told to settle down, and if you were miserable, you were told to buck up. Yeah. There was this <laughs> idea of living in this perfect grey area of of moderate uh, <laughs> moderate, moderate behaviour when all this chaos was going on around us. So, mm. you know, in some ways, very similar to to Grant, or at least the end result was pretty similar. Yeah. So, when did you start drinking or taking drugs? Uh, well, I I uh, started probably drinking when I was about fifteen. Uh, I also started smoking when I was very young. I'm 57 now. I'm proud to say I've been smoking for 45 years. Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> desperately keen to give up that. Um, and I was diagnosed with um, anxiety or ill ease when I was about 16, so I was uh, was given Serapax uh, at that age, and uh, I 
don't know that I actively abused them, but I was abusing them at the age of, you know, 16. So I was taking benzodiazepines from uh, from the age of 16. Right. Okay. Mm. Uh, so back to you then, Grant. Um, so high school was not much fun. Primary school is a disaster. High school was not much better. So what what happened next? Um, yeah, so in my mid-teens, probably about year eight, um, my mum started getting back on her feet after the separation and um, the opportunity came up to to move away from where I was at that time from Maui and um, I headed over to a new school and began living in um, Cockatoo and I just followed, I don't know, I just followed what I'd always had. You know, I went, first place I went was um, down the main street and the first people I met, um, I remember the first person I met asked me for a cigarette and I went, oh yeah, cool, these guys are the smokers and um, got to know a few of them and once again, the first thing that I got introduced to was a local pot dealer, uh, where we smoked pot, where we smoked the cigarettes, and um, introduced to the local scene. There was um, there was one particular person that really took me under his wing, and um, I went to the secondary college around that area, and he introduced me to everyone, um, all of the pot smokers and dealers, and where we went before school to smoke pot, and where we went at lunchtime to smoke pot, and... Um, I started, you know, thinking that I'd made some friends there and because I've come from the background where, you know, I didn't get along with anyone and, you know, basically everyone hated me from where I came from, this being liked was amazing. And my form of defence was, you know, violence, I guess. You know, all all we wanted to do, all the locals did there and I joined in with it was, um, you know, get alcohol, drink as much as possible and anybody that walked past, you know, find an excuse to, to fight with them, to bash them, to gang bash them, which was, you know, that's that's what I went through. But for some reason, that was my form of defence. When I did that with the group of people, I felt safe. And it just became regular. Every single weekend, we'd just get as much alcohol as possible. If somebody had drugs, you know, acid, speed, you know, just the whole just a whole lot we'd just take it oh i'd just take it without question and i'd take it until it ran out and with the alcohol i'd drink it until either i dropped it run out or i woke up at home the pattern became for me that i'd go to house parties invited or not didn't matter drink as much as possible take as much drugs as possible and that was the only thing that I saw as fun, that was the only way I knew to have fun. Um, the result of that was I'd get messy drunk and, you know, most of the time I'd get into a fight at the party and it didn't matter with who, how big they were, how many people they were, I was incoherent most of the time and um, found myself getting, you know, dropped off at home not knowing, you know, who brought me home or really what would happen. All I knew was most of the time, you know, I was covered in blood and all sorts of things. And it was just, I'd wake up the next day and try and think about what happened and just the shame of, you know, being that blonde drunk and making such a fool of myself at the parties or whatever. You know, I'd just dwell on that. And the only way to, for me to deal with that was just to drink more and more and more. Or if I knew who the violence had been, 
around and they got in the better of me was the only way I could redeem myself was to, you know, obviously try and hunt them down for revenge or whatever it is. And this just resulted in geographicals. I just started, I just started moving around, you know, one suburb to another, um, blind drunk. I was sleeping with girls and I got several girls pregnant, just completely reckless in what I did. I had no thought of consequences whatsoever. Um, I was riding around on motorbikes, you know, between the age of sort of 15 to 18, no licence, not registered, you know, all hours of the day and night and just, I just didn't care. And I ended up getting into an apprenticeship in that area and it was doing boiler making, welding, all that type of thing. And I thought, yep, this is my ticket. You know, this is how I'm going to be able to start life. But the... Uh, what do you call it, dyslexia, sort of got him away again. I found myself not being able to read the drawings, not being able to put things together the way other people did. And, um, yeah, once again, I failed at that. And I started getting to the point where I was like, you know, I'm not good at sports. I can't read drawings. I can't spell properly. I can't get any of this stuff right. And I just started feeling like, I just thought, there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do to be successful here. All I can do is just keep drinking, keep taking drugs, keep moving around. Um, and I ended up falling into the transport industry, which was, you know, not long after I'd turned 18, which was something that, thank God, I was good at. <laughs> but the problem was I just had not learned any social skills whatsoever. I didn't know how to communicate with people that lived life normally you know if you weren't drinking and you weren't off your face on drugs then it was like it was just inconceivable how how do I socialize with these people they you know they talk about normal stuff and I didn't know anything about sport I didn't know anything about anything I just did not know how to make conversations so even as I started falling into that industry whenever a social event came up or anything I just same thing just drank take drugs to the extreme level and it didn't back off. As I started getting into the work environment, if there were any social events, I'd just drink to the point where I was completely legless. If there were any drugs on offer, I'd get those, take as much as possible. And as soon as someone criticised me, it just went straight to offence. It was, you know, I couldn't accept the fact that maybe they were joking or something like that. I used to take everything personal. And um, same thing as, you know, high school or whatever, just a result in me getting aggressive, violent, um, embarrassment and all that type of thing. And as I started working at the companies and, you know, building a reputation, I was good at my job and getting into management, um, you know, I'd embarrass myself or get into a fight or smash equipment, you know, out of, out of anger because I didn't know how to express emotion. All I knew how to do was protect myself. And, um, yeah, I just started skipping through industries there. Okay. Running. Well, listen, we might take a break. There's a wine Hello. fundraiser, uh, and I'm going to plug it on here, and, and they have lots of bottles to sell here to raise money for 2CR. This is quite bizarre, someone who was a very big wine drinker doing an ad about wine. Wine is available for collection from the 2CR office. 3CR. And, or 3CR. <laughs> here I am in Victoria. Uh, or can, and can be ordered online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. That's uh, 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or by phoning the station on 9419 8377. Go grab your pen. That's 9419 
8377 and you'll be speaking to Loretta in the office who is now doubling as a bottle shop manager. Okay, and here's the fundraiser. In the summer I went swimming in the summer. Yay for summer! Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. Thanks to the support of Small Patch Wine Store in Hawthorne, we're selling 3CR Radical Radio labelled wines for only $15 a bottle. And they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Call the station between 9 to 5 on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward shop. Then you can drop into our Fitzroy studios to collect before the 21st of December. Small Patch Wine Store is a 3CR supporter. And she said everything I said. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Living Free on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. We have over 60 podcasts of the show available uh, for Living Free at um, 3cr.org.au forward slash Living Free, and they're also available on iTunes. If you want to contact us, then you can call the 3CR studio uh, on 9419 8377 or send us an email at 3cr livingfree at gmail.com, and we're also on Twitter. Um, I'm talking with Grant and Neil, and we're talking about living through drug addiction and also alcoholism. Um, so, Neil, do you want to sort of fill us in? You, I think we left you when you were around about 16. You'd been diagnosed with depression, and you're on some medication. How did life pan out? from there well you know i couldn't wait to get out of that joint and i got out as soon as i could um but i took that that um way of dealing with the world with me you know i had i I created a new person who didn't have that past um and i found myself i initially tried to broach a relationship with my father by becoming a pilot uh which didn't work out well and i lost my job at a flying school uh during a drought and uh, i ended up working in a theatre thing and I thought I'd always wanted to do something creative so I I sort of fell into acting really and uh, uh, and I fell into I got all the things I wanted um, I wanted uh, uh, friendships I wanted uh, adulation I wanted love I wanted respect but I also fell into a drinking culture uh, and a drugging culture and um, uh, that persisted through my adult life, but because it started with a lie, I just the, the lie just got bigger as I went on. Um, uh, you know, uh, and uh, Grant talks about hitting people. I didn't hit people, but I could destroy people with uh, my mouth. You know, with my tongue, and I would. Uh, I was very cruel. Um, something I'm not very proud of. Um, and I was a I was a user of people because you know I used people. In the way that all addicts and alcoholics use people, you know, for what what we could get, whether it be status, um, the opportunity to drink and drug, um, the uh, 
the the sort of being with someone who we felt was important that actually validated us, uh, all those things. Well, they were readily available to me. I was living in that world. Uh, and when I look back at some of my behaviours with respect to the people that I've kind of insinuated myself into the company of, um, it's pretty appalling. It's so demeaning and demoralising to think about it now. And also some of the, you know, the lies that I told. I used to find myself in a room sometimes, like in a foyer of a theatre, and there'd be three people in there that I'd told three separate stories to about the same incident. They were all lies. And then I would find myself uh, just exhausted trying to either keep those people apart or, or, or negotiating in my own head how I was going to sort of deal with what happened if someone said, you said blah, and I said, oh, no, you must have misunderstood me or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, life very quickly became very complicated, very busy. We talk in, uh, in the rooms uh, about, you know, it becomes a 24-hour occupation. Not only are you thinking about how you're going to score, when you're going to score, are you going to have the money to do it, but then you've also got all the... All the Lies, uh, yeah. peripheral issues yeah. that surround it all the lies you have to tell <laughs> yeah. all all the 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 bullshit that you've got to keep on top of you know there are stories about my life now that I have told for so long because I I didn't get clean until I was 53 that I am not even certain I know these events took place but I, I'm not sure of the details because I've told so many different versions of those stories over the years that I that I'm I'm lost uh, so best not to talk about that. Yeah, right. um, you know, what grade of cricket did I end up playing? Those sorts of things. You know. mm. um, so how did how did life progress then? So what what was the next major event? Well, I mean, I was I, I became quite successful in, at my job, and then I just started doing all the things that I thought I needed to do to in order to. Um, have the life that I thought I needed to have. My mother's lived a life out of a um, out of a magazine, really. You know, we used to throw out the couch every second year because we'd get the new one because you know we just always had to have something new. And so, uh, I you know, my life was about acquisition. It became about you know so much about the external things and about acquiring, getting to this level, getting. You know, I used to talk a lot about how much I earned because actors don't earn a lot in this country. A lot of people think that we're all quite well off. But, you know, for an actor to earn $100,000 a year in this country as a jobbing actor is a big deal, and I'd always talk about that. Then I'd go out and get something to prove that I, I earned that much. And then I actually took a, a, a woman a hostage and married her because I thought, that's a good idea. That'll make me happy. It's interesting when I look at my wedding photographs, I look at a man acting happy. Uh, I didn't know what happiness was. Mm. Uh, that's one of the great um, revelations and, and extraordinary sort of tragedies of this this illness is that I woke up in rehab knowing that I'd never really experienced happiness. I, I didn't know what it was. And actually when I did experience it, I, I kind of questioned I thought, what the hell is this? What's going on here? I'm, is this happiness? I think I might be happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Um, so, yeah, I got married, uh, took a woman hostage and then progressively sort of used and abused her to the point where um, after 13 years of marriage, the whole thing collapsed. And within six months, I was living in my car pretty much. So did did it affect your mental state? Oh, absolutely. Um, I became more and more confused. You become more less and less kind of connected to reality and more and more connected to... Um, so this dysfunctional world that you're inhabiting, that you're the only person that inhabits. Um, 
it's very difficult to explain to the lay person, and I presume that there are some lay people listening to this. Um, you know, we talk about depression, and I think that the co- comorbidity of, of mental health illnesses with, with addiction is not uncommon. Um, it's, it's almost impossible to explain the bleakness of it, um, and it, it's progressive. They say that addiction is progressive, alcoholism is progressive, um, depression is progressive as well, and the three, they make very poor bedfellows. Um, and you get to a point where, you know, everything is a problem, everyone is a problem, the world is more and more and more against you, uh, and there appears to be no way out until you find yourself at the age of 53, you know, in late August 1953, making a very lame attempt at suicide because although uh, I didn't want to die, I just couldn't see how how life could progress uh, go on yeah it, it was it was finished you know um uh, we were talking earlier on when we were outside also you know those first weeks in rehab of actually staring into the blackness and thinking well what now mm. um because there is an extraordinary sense of helplessness and hopelessness in those around that time that's impossible to describe yeah okay um so grant did you get married yeah, I did end up um, getting married, funny enough, um, to a lovely lady who uh, I was actually, um, I knew from my teenage years. And um, yeah, while well, I was in my working life, I turned up there and this is where my addiction took a, a new sort of turn. Before it was all out in the open, it was fun and games and, you know, I didn't really see it as a problem at that stage, even after all that had happened. But um yeah, when we got together, I found myself straight away hiding the amount that I drank and that I used. So when we got together, I would drink every night. However, I'd started doing that on the way home from work or when I'd bring um, alcohol home, I'd have it stashed in my pocket so I'd have it hidden up my jumper and I started finding places around the house where I could actually um, where I could hide that because... I became. I started becoming becoming embarrassed of it, but um, yeah, I was drinking on a nightly basis, and um, everything was going really well. After uh, six months, yeah, my first son started uh, coming along, and we decided to get to get married. And um, yeah, I'd been using speed pills and alcohol every night. However, she was completely unaware of it. Um, it seems hard to believe, but. Oh. It, it it does happen, doesn't it? People, you know, are not aware of. Drug well, they, I think they don't want to believe. I think they may have suspicion, but they kind of know they don't want to believe that yeah. because this is the person that trust. they're investing their future in. Yeah, you don't want to believe the worst of them. You want to believe the best of them. Yeah, yeah. And we exploit that. Yes, we do. Well, yeah, well, that's a hundred percent true. I mean, I had full trust at that stage, and I took that for everything it was worth. Um, I started getting into the cheaper alcohols. This is where it really sort of it hit home, you know. I started buying big bottles of port and all sorts of stuff, and same as per normal, you know, I tangled all the drugs up underneath it, in between it, you know, pills, alcohol, trips. Um, and I got given an ultimatum not far down the track. My daughter was born, and um, my wife was in was in labour with her, and 
she told me after the um, after she'd given birth, you know, I did it all on my own, and I didn't, I was, even wasn't aware at the time. I thought I was there for it, but every twenty minutes I was down, you know, drinking near on another six pack or making an excuse to get food, and I was running down the street trying to get drugs. I just nothing that I did was, you know, was the same without drugs and alcohol. I had to have them for absolutely everything. She gave me the uh, ultimatum. She said, look, you know, if we're going to stay together, if this is going to happen, then you need you need to stop drinking. And um, my first attempt at that was going to the doctors and uh, saying, look, I've got an alcohol problem. I really need to stop. So, you know, they gave me Valium and whatnot. So I just abused the crap out of that, you know, took them all on the first night went back, tried to manipulate getting more um, and it wasn't long after just sunk straight back into the same pattern and um, yeah, I sort of, I moved industries at that stage, I was given the ultimatum again, look you're out of control, you know, you're getting violent, we can't talk to you, you always stink like alcohol, what's going on and um, yeah, my recipe to that was to go and pick up the ice and I didn't think that would be too much of an issue. I'd heard about everyone getting addicted to it, and I thought, no, you know, I can control everything. That's not me. That's fine. So when I started using ice, I thought it was, you know, the best thing since sliced bread because I could work nonstop, 24 hours a day. Um, I didn't stink like alcohol. It stopped me drinking alcohol, but the problem was it stopped me eating food. It stopped me drinking water, and I found myself within a very short amount of time, um, just not being able to put it down. I was using it while I was driving to work. Um, as soon as I got into work, I was using it. I was using it at work, and my behaviours just swung out of control. You know, I was smashing equipment at work. I was abusing co-workers. And um, just the, the smallest, you know, hint that someone thought I was using it, I just became super aggressive and... Um, you know, I was never physically violent towards my wife. However, mentally, you know, I was a horrible person because if she would try and change me, I'd put her down and say, you know, I'm the one that's working. I'm doing all of this. You know, how dare you accuse me of taking drugs? Mm -hmm. And to the point where I'd be screaming, I'd be starting to get short with the kids and all of a sudden... I was losing focus on reality. I just had this cloud around my head and all it was about was using the drugs and getting somewhere else where I could use the drugs. And then when I'd come home and it was supposed to be family time, it would be manipulating the family to get away from me so I could use drugs or, you know, hiding, isolating myself in places mm -hmm. where I'd use for, you know, I'd be there for six, eight hours using and then I'd look up at the clock and I'd thought it would only be half an hour. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd be screaming out the door to sort of get the kids to school or rush the kids to school, you know, completely out of it, but not even thinking about their safety in the vehicle or any of that type of thing. I became completely self-absorbed and anybody else's feelings, I just lost touch with them. It's not that I didn't care about people. I'd just become sucked into this small world in, in my head and I was, I was out of control. I couldn't control my emotions. It was just, I think manic is the only word that I can describe because it would take me two hours to pack to find a pack of chewing gum in my car because I was just so out of control. And that was that was the, the, um, the drug that sort of 
that brought me to rehab for the first time when I finally got caught red-handed after two years and, um, you know, attempted suicide myself, um, you know, in an alcoholic blackout. My wife threatened to leave and my answer to that was to try and hang myself in the garage and woke up unconscious on the floor because a rope broke and um, I admitted I had a problem there and, um, yeah, went off to rehab, my first rehab. And um, Awesome, we might stop it there. We'll just have a song, quick song. Uh, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, I'm talking with Grant and Neil, and we're talking about recovery from drug addiction. Um, so, Neil, I understand you've come into NAIA a few times. Mm. You've been in rehab a few times. Mm. Um, so the last time you came in, mm. what was it like... And what happened? Well, it was very different. Um, you know, the other times I went to, I think I had three detoxes at Windana. I did two rehabs uh, at a, a sort of an expensive private healthy type place. Um, I had everything still. I had the house in East St Kilda. I had the trophy wife. I had the kid in private school. I had the career. Um, the last time all that stuff had gone uh, and it went very, very quickly. I had a manic episode. I was doing a documentary in South Africa. I had a manic episode in 2013, July 2013, in a hotel in Pretoria. Um, and I got back to Australia late July, early August. By December 2013, my marriage was over. My career was in tatters. Uh, and I packed everything I owned into my car. I went to Adelaide, uh, where I tried desperately, manfully to uh, maintain the facade that everything was going okay. But eventually, you know, um, you know, addiction, uh, the anxiety that comes with addiction, alcoholism, and addiction is so. I'm already prone to anxiety, having um, having bipolar. The additional anxiety that's created by addiction and um, it's a bit like a spring, you know, the drugs and the alcohol push that spring down uh, and then when the drugs and the alcohol wear off, that spring's fully open again and that's that 4.30 in the morning thing of dry reaching with anxiety and, and having to get on so that you can push that spring back down again but it doesn't stay down for very long. You've just got to keep, keep going. So, you know, I, I had some money which I went through, um, and eventually I, I mean, I was, I, I, I arrived off the back of a very poor uh, suicide attempt. I clearly didn't want to kill myself, although I thought I did. Um, I was very fortunate that I did that at a friend's place, and I had no money at that stage, and um, there's very limited places in public rehabs, as we all know here in this state, uh, there was nowhere for me to go. The, the CAT team wouldn't admit me to the psych ward. So luckily uh, a friend of mine rang a charity um, that I had been on the board of uh, and said, one of yours is in a bit of trouble. And they got me into a rehab. But when I got there, I just thought, well, it's all over because I was staring at blackness, you know, all I, I had nothing. But I remember going to my first meeting and... Um, reluctantly 
and uh, uh, conceding that despite the fact that I didn't want to be there and everyone in the room was a loser, I felt safe and I felt amongst people who perhaps understood me. Um, and so that was the difference, I think. The difference was that I... Well, the difference was that I was beaten. I didn't have anywhere else to go. I, I, I literally didn't have anywhere else to go. It wasn't quite like I didn't have anyone else to see... I just didn't have anywhere else to go. I was out of ideas. Pretty smart man, but pretty dumb when it comes to this whole illness. So um, I knew that if I went back out there, I wasn't going to last very long. So I had to give this a go. And I'm glad that I did. And I was very fortunate that um, uh, I had some very uh, persuasive and uh, compassionate people put in my path in early recovery who helped me to navigate those difficult times mm. because they are difficult times. We don't like to think that we're beaten because, you know, we're, we're, we're proud. Uh, you know, this is our proud sort of picking up cigarette butts at 4.30 in the morning, making use of that very valuable time that I got as a result of my early morning anxiety so that I could keep using because you can't smoke and use at the same time. But... Um, having to concede that um, I had no dignity despite the fact that I and I, I had nothing mm. um, and I knew it. Yeah. So how long have you been so um, clean? Clean and sober, clean three and sober. years, three months. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, look, it is. And I was just saying, while, while the cranberries, it's a bit of a cranberry fest, Grant, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, while the cranberries were on, I was saying to Grant, you know... It's funny, I now see that as a, uh, almost like a, some kind of weird thing that happened in the past that, that wasn't me, although I know it was. Uh, my life is so different now. Um, it's almost impossible for me to reconcile that, that person that got so lost um, and so had such a distorted view of himself and his place in the world and the world itself. It's very, very, very difficult for me now to to reconcile that, and that's why I keep c- coming back to meetings, and that's why I listen to people like Grant because you know, as he was telling his story, I was remembering bits of my story that I've forgotten. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. Okay, so um, Grant, coming into NA, what was the thing that you found most helped you to, you know, I guess, have hope to get hope? Uh, Coming into NA, um, to cut a long story a bit shorter, um, the ice took me to a point of my life where I can really relate to, you know, I didn't want to live and I didn't want to die, but the reality was all I wanted to do was die, but I just couldn't grasp the concept of leaving, you know, my mum without a son, losing another son to addiction, or my children without a father. And I fell through the doors of the re- of a twelve step rehab, when I say fell through the doors in the literal sense, um, I was lucky to get in there. And the the twelve step program, uh, we started going to meetings, and I found that when I walked in there, because I had absolutely nothing, no one, and I'd given up on society completely, I walked in there, and the the fellowship was just embracing. The people in there were. They understood where I was at. They could understand the different type of pain that 
I was experiencing because the pain was just excruciating. Like being alive but spiritually dead was just so painful. And the people that had been through this, they were just they were so compassionate and understanding. And they, I mean, they didn't make any promises, but they just said, "Look, you just start working this this twelve step program, and um, life will get better." And I began hearing stories of people that had lived what I'd lived and been down the same road. And these people were not had they taken drugs and alcohol out of their life, but they were actually happy. And that happiness I never had with or without drugs and alcohol. Um, I found that I could, I had trust for these people that I'd never trusted anyone before. All this shame and guilt from everything that I'd done in the past, everything that had happened, I was able to open up and become honest and tell these people like how it really made me felt like you know the feelings that were inside of pain and all this type of thing and you know that trust and understanding that I got there as I started revealing those secrets I found that those feelings that were coming up were actually was that person inside that I never even knew was there and um you know step by step everyone embraced me took me through it and things started to come back Mm. I realised that I wasn't just alive for my kids or anybody else. I was actually alive to be a person myself and I could enjoy life. And as I started enjoying myself and realising, you know, I was a person, the people that I'd lost around me started becoming attracted back to me. And it was, you know, my wife that I hadn't spoken to in over three months, you know, she came back to me and she said, look, I knew that person was always there, was always inside, but you didn't. Mm. And... Yeah, it's, it's a confidence thing, yeah. So, uh, so how long have you been in NA now? Uh, so I've been in NA now for, um, I've been clean for five months and ten days. Right. And it's, yeah, I, I can't describe how grateful I am of the program because I never thought recovery was possible. Could not imagine one day without a drink and definitely couldn't imagine being happiness or happy or able to talk to somebody who wasn't high. Yeah. But. You know, it's given me a whole new, a whole new focus on hope, and you know, a whole new chance at life. I mean, I'm 35, but I get the chance to to start again, and it's it's amazing. It really is a life saving yeah. place. Fabulous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, if anybody would like to find out more about Narcotics Anonymous, then you can phone them on 03 9525 2833, or you can go online at uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Grant and Neil for coming into the 3CR studio and sharing their Narcotics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, My Paul. pleasure. Thank you. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from an eating disorder and we'll be joined by Steffi and Hannah from Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. Uh, stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Uh, thanks for listening to the Living Free program today. 